having the EQ to be able to motivate different types of people, different opinions, put yourself in people's shoes becomes critical because you're not doing the actual work as much as you are working with people, trying to tap into their brains to motivate them. You have to be able to do that. And that requires a lot of EQ. Welcome to the E-Word podcast, leadership lessons from the upside. The E-Word is about empathy and empathetic leadership. And I'm your host, Debbie Kleiman, managing partner of the Upside Angels and a member of the Upside. The Upside is a network of leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and investors who want to transform success into significance by helping others. We believe that the world needs empathetic leadership now more than ever. So we decided to do a podcast on it to showcase some of the best E-Word leaders and how they do it. You'll hear real world examples to understand the E-Word in action. Today's guest is Michael Geller. Michael is a successful GM and operator with over 25 years leading, building, and operating SaaS companies. He's had stints as a leader at Bay Area technology companies such as BlueJeans, Preact, BookRenter.com, and Yahoo. He has also founded several companies of his own. He is currently COO of Reciprocity. So welcome, Michael. We're so glad that you're able to join us today on the E-Word. Debbie, so glad to be here. So let's jump right in. A lot's been written about empathy and being an empathetic leader. In your words, really, what does it mean to be an empathetic leader? What does it mean in practice? Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, it, you know, to me, it really means three somewhat specific and related things. I mean, the definition of empathy and what you need to be able to do is just simply to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, you know, we're all we're all human here. And being able to understand and put yourself in someone's shoes is critically important as a leader. Um, understanding, and the second thing I'd say is understanding and recognizing what drives individuals, right? What what drives people is the need to do a great job, right? People want to have meaning in their role. And whenever they come to work and when the results that they get, the most important thing is they feel like they're taking their time and they're making it useful. Right? And they're actually having a result that what they're driving toward. And the, the third thing is really understanding how to tap into what, I, what I'd say the basic human needs are to be able to motivate people. Um, you know, everybody has a different type of motivator. Um, some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by fame. Some people are motivated by success. Some people are motivated by God knows other things, right? But understanding what those things are, because as a leader, your job is to give them you know, the ability to do a great job, but also to motivate them to do that great job. So understanding what an individual person is motivated by is critically important. Yeah. And it's it, a lot of leaders do take the time to sort of make that a very custom program for the people that work for them, right? They want to understand that deeply and then design the job and the, the daily function around that. Many, many do. And I've seen many don't, you know, when you, when you, you know, to, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you are, uh, for example, a sales leader, a lot of salespeople, a lot of the really great salespeople are, you know, they're called quote coin operated, right? They're cash driven. The more money they make, the happier they are. That's great. If you're managing a team of salespeople over here and you're managing a team of customer success people over here, customer success managers who are mostly focused on the post-sale experience for SaaS companies, 
those folks, I only hire people in customer success that have empathy for customers because they want the customers to do well. So to them, it's not about them making money. Of course, it's important, but they're interested in ensuring that the customers look at them as their business partner, their business leader, and giving them the ability to have those experiences and to feel that sense of importance in terms of being the conduit between the company and the customer is huge. And a salesperson doesn't care about that, right? And right. a marketer will consider something completely different and say, this is, you know, they want to create, you know, I don't know, great ad campaigns, or I don't know, you know, I haven't been a long time since I've been a marketer, but, you know, what motivated me was building the business, right? Getting the brand out there, getting, and all of these different things when you're talking to a salesperson, success, marketer, developer, you know, executive, everybody has different things that motivates them. And you have to understand what is it that truly motivates and gets somebody out of bed. And as a leader, make sure you provide a chance to achieve that to each individual person. So uh, you said something I want to ask you a little bit further about. You said that when you're hiring customer success people, you're really looking for that. How can you test that in the recruiting and hiring process? How can you tell someone has the kind of empathy that they need to be a good customer success rep? You know, it it always comes out. It's a great question. It always comes out when you talk about prior experiences and things that they have achieved. A really good customer success person will immediately gravitate towards, I helped my customer do this. My customer achieved their goals. And it's all external facing, right? If you ask, what's the what's the what's the most interesting thing or what's the biggest achievement you've ever had in a corporate environment? Those folks will say, oh, gosh, I had this customer and I completely turned them around. Right. And, you know, when you're when, when, when you have the gray hair that I have and you're an old man and you've done this long enough, what you start to recognize is when people have passion about things, it comes across very natural. And when they have passion for those customers and they have passion for those customers succeeding, that's where you see, aha, OK, this person understands. I also very much ask it directly. Right. You know, tell me what motivates you. Tell me. Tell me what, you know, what does empathy mean? What do you think critical skills are for a CSM person who needs to have empathy in order to do a good job? And if they've never thought about it, they've never talked about it, you, you can sort of recognize that too. And that, okay, maybe they're not necessarily somebody who has a ton. But usually if you ask them about customers and things that you've done for them, they light up like Christmas trees. Because to them, they put their, their every day what they do you know, is they use empathy and they put themselves in the customer's shoes. They're the advocate for the customer within the organization. Sure. And when you ask them a question about this and they light up like a Christmas tree, then you know you, you've, you've, you've found somebody like that. Yeah, so that's interesting. So we'll, we're going to start to see uh, empathy appear in job descriptions and, and helping leaders diagnose that in the hiring process. I think that's smart. So we're in funny times, right? The great resignation, or so it's being called, is happening. Turnover is high for a lot of companies. People are going out on their own more and more. You know, you've worked in some medium and large companies over time. What do you think is important when it comes to showing empathy and being an empathetic leader in terms of retention and, and keeping people in the jobs that they're in? When there may not be either a place for them to go otherwise, or you really want to keep them and you don't want them to leave. Right. The worst feeling that I have in my role is when somebody resigns. It's like a punch in the gut. And it's really hard 
to not just react with what can I give you to stay and how can I get you to, and just to jump down their throat. It's really hard because that's, that, that's natural. You don't want to, if something's working, you don't ever want it to stop. And it, by someone coming in and resigning during this great resignation, they just created more work for you because now you have to, not only do you have to usually, you know, handle that role while that person's gone until you fill them, but now you have to go and work and fill it. And then that's always a question mark and it's just a nightmare, right? I've had, you know, lots of people resign from organizations where I've worked and my job the moment they say I'm not, first of all, hopefully it never gets to that point. We could do a whole series on how to make sure it doesn't get to that point. But if it did, my job and the way I see my job, because we're, we're all in this for the long haul, is to support them in their career and to help coach them and guide them to make what I'll call the right decision. And the right decision could be could be many different paths. You know, I had, you know, one of, one of my earliest people that ever resigned from me, I remember I was, you know, as my the company I founded, Homestead. And an employee who, you know, she she was one of those people who just loved to shop, literally loved to shop. I'm not, this is not just a stereotype. She And she was very open about it. And she was an incredibly smart, incredibly motivated, incredibly talented woman, you know, Stanford Business School, whatever it was. And she came into me with tears in her eyes. And she said, Michael, I, I got to tell you something. I just got offered my dream job, right? She was going to become a buyer at Pottery Barn. Okay. And, you know, and I was working at a software company and she got the job, a chance to be a buyer at Pottery Barn. And, and I looked at her and, you know, boy, this was going to be a pain in the butt for me, but like, of course you have to go do that, you know, is what I said to her. Like, there, there's no question in my mind that that is a good move for you. And putting her needs over mine is critical, right? Because we still keep in touch to this day because she appreciated the fact that I didn't do anything to try to make her life hell or try to keep her or whatever. Like some people make that decision and it's a good decision. I've had other people come in and resign and I've quite frankly spoken, you know, talked them out of it because it wasn't the right move for them at the time. We were able to sort of walk through different options and, and why and what we can do. And, and, you know, I've had people, you know, boomerang, right? Leave and come back in three months. I've had people leave and try to come back in three months. And that didn't go so well sometimes. I've had people recently during this great resignation, right, where they'd come to me and they'd say, I'm leaving. And I'd say, okay, what are you looking for? And, you know, I'm, I'm the COO of a small company. And they'd say, I want to work in a big company. I said, you know what? As a, as a, as a person to early in, in, in your career, I think that makes a ton of sense. Let's talk through the two or three ideas that you have. And hell, I'll help you go find the next job if you want, right? Because I, we all know a lot of people. We all been doing this long enough, and you know, it's just a matter of really understanding what is the right path for that individual, and and being just very honest and very open with them about how can you go and make that that good decision. So it's funny you talk about you know them boomeranging back. So in in helping them leave, you you might also be helping them come back, right? Being empathetic and understanding and listening to, you know, why they want to leave and being mindful of helping them whatever way you can. Yeah. Because we, we've all made that career mistake, right? You learn more from your mistakes than the things that you do. Right. And I spend a lot of time asking people, please don't make the same mistake that I made. And I go through and I explain to them what I did. Right. And one of them literally recently when I described the mistake I made, you know, he kind of looked at me and he was a really smart guy. And he goes, well, you seem to turn out okay. I was like, oh God, <laughs> you're right. Damn you. Using logic on me. I hated it. Right. 
Um, but the boomerang people are interesting. There's there's one school of thought that says never hire back a boomerang person because then what it does is it, it gives every employee almost the right to quit and then come back. And I do not subscribe to that school of thought. I subscribe to it totally depends on the person and their motivation and why they want to why they want to move on. I've had I mean I've one person at a company a couple of years ago, you know, he boomeranged back and he decided he wanted to go to a larger company. He went and he realized the grass is not always greener, right? And he looked at it and he said, "God, I had it better than what I ever thought I had. What the heck did I do?" And as long, you know, he called me and said, "Okay, I screwed up." I'm like, "Great." You know, I still love you. Come on back. And that was it. And it was a very simple conversation. And I had to I had to argue with my HR person about this because she subscribed to the first, which is we never want to let a boomerang person in. But I don't believe in that. I believe that if someone's really quality and really talented and it's someone that's a regrettable loss because there's regrettable and unregrettable. Mm-hmm. But if it's a regrettable loss and they want to come back, if anything, what happens is they come back into the organization and they say, hey, guys, you guys don't know how good you have it here. Right. They spread like, the word. They spread the word like don't like it's 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 horrible out there. Stay here. Right. And I, I'm I'm convinced that this happens. So but that's not always the case. Again, every person is different. Right. Understanding and putting yourself in their shoes and understanding their motivations is really what helps you make that decision as to whether to let them boomerang or not. Yeah. And I, I see that as a big part of being an empathetic leader, for sure. Now, you've worked for some really great CEOs and presidents as part of their leadership teams. And and one thing I know well about you is that you're good not only at managing the teams that work for you, but you're good at managing the people around you and, you know, Mm -hmm. people who might quote unquote be above you. Let's talk a little bit about how you do that, because I'm sure some of our listeners find themselves in that situation where those wonderful empathetic leadership skills they're hoping to hone could play a role in managing up. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, it's definitely harder than managing down, right? Because managing down, you have the the blessing of authority, right? But managing up, you're the, you know, minion, not the minion, but you're the person who's trying to convince the person who has more power than you do something's up. So yeah, so there, I've been in situations, one in particular where, you know, I came into a company and the product that we were selling and that the CEO had effectively invented and had built a very strong business on was no longer the best product for the market as it evolved. So the market changed and, you know, it's hard for people to see that sometimes unless you're absolutely down in the weeds and you're talking to customers and talking to prospects on a daily basis. So, you know, I had to have hard conversations with the entire executive team, myself included, but the CEO and the founder that, hey, the market changed and the product that you built and basically became famous for is no longer sufficient and it's failing, you know, and he didn't want to hear that. And I, I, you know, everybody has different triggers. You know, this person was an engineer. So I said, okay, you know, I got to figure out other ways to communicate that'll drive the point home because he thinks in terms of numbers and data. So I put data in front of him and I showed him metrics and I said, here's, here's what users are saying and here's what the numbers look like. And he got a little bit more angry because effectively what you're telling somebody is you're telling a parent that their baby is ugly, but the CEO, he didn't want to hear that his baby was ugly. I finally, the one thing he did have though, you know, he didn't want to listen to data and he didn't want to listen to me and my analysis of the market. What he finally did listen to was 
I said, okay, I'm going to try a third approach. I'm going to put customers and customer quotes in front of him. And he really appreciated that. And that got him to where he needed to be. That got him to understand, okay, I see what's going on here. You know, putting customer quotes, literally taking a slide, here's what the customers are saying, writing it out, putting it in italics so it looks like an actual quote. I don't know why that has an effect, but it does. It takes things that are subjective and makes them objective because I'm a huge believer in customer centricity and putting the customer at the center of everything you do. And if you have customers telling you this in emails, on phones, if you can if you can capture recordings, hell, I've, I've even brought customers to the office to sit down with the company to say what's working and what's not. The more that you can provide that data, the more that people will begin to understand what the real problem is and you'll be able to get through. Yeah, so it's the same sort of mind jujitsu that you're doing here where, you know, with a leader, you're understanding how they see the world. You're putting them so- yourself in their shoes, how they want to receive information that will convince them or persuade them. That sounds like a- another form of empathy, right? I mean, it's pretty similar to what you were talking about. It's just kind of going the other way. It's, 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 it's looking up versus down. You know, as, a, as an executive in a company, I like to joke, right? I don't really do anything, but I influence the people that are doing all the work. And the influence down means I set, I, I figure out what motivates the team. I set goals. I, you know, make sure that we're on the same trades. I make sure everybody understands and understands the strategy, all that. But you have to use those same skills and look upward and understand what motivates people. You know, what's going to get people to understand what you're saying? Because different people have different communication styles and different people have different, you know, ways to be convinced of things. And being able to understand all those different methods and and what to do and what not to do, I think is critical. I've heard you talk before about sort of the difference between IQ and EQ and and when each one is more important than the other. Can you tell me a little bit about that in relation to what you just said? As you go up the corporate ladder, you know, when you start out, it's incredibly important that your, your, your IQ becomes important because people are giving you things to do and they want to make sure that you're going to get them done and you're going to be smart about it and it's going to work. As you grow in your career, what happens is the EQ starts to get more important because now, as I said earlier, right, your, your job is to motivate and influence because if you ask a CEO what he or she does, you know, they set the strategy, they hire the right people and, and then ensure that they do their job. That's only EQ. I mean, you have to be smart about the business and you have to be obviously very smart, but having the EQ to be able to motivate different types of people, different opinions, put yourself in people's shoes is just becomes critical because you're, you're not doing the actual work as much as you are working with people, trying to tap into their brains to motivate them, to figure out what's right, what's wrong to all the things we just talked about. You have to be able to do that. And that requires a lot of, a lot of EQ. Yeah, just just in case people don't know what EQ is, you want to define it. Yeah, it's it's instead of um, what is IQ, intellectual quotient. EQ is you know e- emotional quotient, right? It's the ability, it's emotional intelligence, right? It's the ability to understand, use, and and really manage your own emotions in positive ways, just to be able to to work together with different people. Yeah, um, it's the it's the emotional side of things. I also hear you in everything that you've sort of talked about so far, I hear a lot about like 
communication and the importance of communicating face-to-face with people or like one-on-one, it sounds like that's really core to your own philosophy about being a good empathetic leader. Yeah. And I hate working from home. I hate where we are today in this whole pandemic. Um, For those of you who are listening 100 years in the future, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We we lost our offices. We don't work face-to-face nearly enough. And what I've found is the thing that's missing by everybody working behind these little screens is you're missing the ability to build relationships and build trust with people, which really only comes with face-to-face communication. We live in a world where my oldest, you know, is a junior in college and he communicates via Snapchat and, you know, three character texts only. And picking up the phone and speaking to him is a foreign concept. Email, Slack, all of these things could be misinterpreted. Being able to to just have a conversation with somebody and get on the same page and build that relationship and build that trust, it's just a lot harder when everybody is working from home and working Mm -hmm. remote. Today, you know, when everybody's hiding behind email and Slack and text, very, very challenging. So I always encourage people, you know, anytime there's a, you know, a question of a miscommunication or, hey, I can't believe this person said that and I'm going to write an email back, like, stop, don't write the email, pick up the, pick up the phone and just call them or get on a meeting and look at them and have the conversation because I guarantee you they didn't mean what you thought they meant. Yeah. Well, and you also said the word trust in there too. Um, You know, I think trust is incredibly important in terms of building relationships that work well. And, and certainly trust is important when it comes to the E word too, right? Like it can feel, it might feel inauthentic if you start trying to ramp up the EQ with someone when you don't already have a certain level of trust. So do you have any maybe tips about how you were able to build trust during the pandemic online when you when you were forced to create those relationships and build trust online? Yeah, it's really hard. You know, I, I, I would just say the only tips is to just get off email and get off Slack. And if the best you can do is face-to-face over a Zoom meeting, then go face-to-face over a Zoom meeting. And just, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, of reading people's body language and looking at them. So one of the things that I always tell people when they jump on calls with me is turn your camera on, right? Turn your camera on. I don't want to, I don't want to just look at a black screen. If, if, if I could, if I could look at you and look at your eyes and understand, you know, because you, you, you know this, right? It's just the body language is so important. It's more than 50% of communication. And if you don't have that, it's very hard to have a very clear and rich conversation with someone. So ensuring that everything you can do is as face-to-face and in real life as possible, even better. I'm not requiring it, but if, you know, I, I tell people, hey, look, let's go out for a beer. Let's sit down. Let's talk about, if something's bothering you, let's sit down and just talk through it. And it's amazing what a $5 beer will solve for you versus text or Slack. Just it's getting somebody to like, relax, put their defenses down, have a yeah, conversation. Like, people are human. People are human. And and I think people, you know, it, it, it's like people aren't resources and they're not robots. Everybody has something that motivates them. Everybody has, every one of the employees in the company has something going on in their own head. So, you know, what, what, how do you get that out? Face-to-face and over, over drinks is always really good. Great. One of the things that I hear a lot when I talk to people about empathetic leadership is just, they really feel strongly that 
it's clear empathetic leadership is not a soft skill or not considered soft per se. It, I guess it is a soft skill, but it's not considered soft. It's not considered something that you do because it's touchy-feely. You do it because it produces real results, real outcomes for your company. But yet it's not really something that's taught in business school. It's, it, it seems like it's a bit of a novelty do you agree with that? Or, you know, how do you, how do you see it? And, and should it be taught in business school? Oh God. Yeah. No, I, I, I very much believe everything you just said in that it is considered a soft skill. It's considered touchy feely. I don't know if, you know, you and I went to business school a long time ago. I wasn't taught it. I don't think you were taught it. I don't know that there was even a class in it because I, I, I'm the, I'm the son of a psychologist, right? I would have taken the class if it, if it had existed. So, so okay, I, I, I believe in that stuff. I believe in this, if you couldn't tell, right? So I don't understand why it's such a novelty. I don't understand why it's not taught because if anything, if you think about it, if the goal of a getting someone through business school is that person wants to end up at the top of the corporate pyramid, right? And just sort of just being really gross in general here, the skill that you need most at the top of that corporate pyramid is EQ. One potential reason why people don't teach it is because it might not be teachable. Maybe you're born with it, right? Maybe it's, it's, it's endemic to you. Maybe it's just internalized and it's just internalized through a life or maybe it's not, I don't know. I, 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 hell, I'd love to teach a course in it one day. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's just, it's cause it's just so important. And it's, it's hard to under it's, I'll bet you it's being taught somewhere. I'll bet you somebody out there has said, Hey, we really need to do this to train our, to train the next generation of leaders. So I'll bet you, if you downloaded, you know, the course catalogs for the top hundred business schools, you'd find it in there a bunch of times. Mm. Um, I, I think it needs to be more, but I, I, I'll bet you it's taught somewhere. Yeah. Well, my hunch is that if I keep doing this podcast and get enough stories from enough great empathetic leaders like yourself, those stories will be instructive enough. Amen, brother. Amen. All right. So we're getting near the end of our time together. So I was hoping that, you know, you might summarize a little bit of the key takeaways for our listeners about our conversation about empathetic leadership. Sure, sure. I mean, I would say, I mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a child of a psychologist, but developing a, a basic understanding of human psychology is critical especially as you get more and more senior, you know, understanding what's in people's heads, what motivates them, what doesn't motivate them. There's a great book that I try to hand out to all my employees called The Psychology of Influence by Robert Cialdini, which I, I, I was taught in undergrad of all places. And I think it's just fantastic. But understanding what's in that book, I think is really helpful. As you go higher in your career, EQ becomes more important than IQ. That's just the way it works, right? You're 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 not doing as much work as much as you're influencing everybody around you, and that's why you're as a leader. That's your definition. I would say communication is absolutely critical, right? To stop the stop the emailing and 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 texting and slacking and just pick up the phone or or go have a beer. And I, I would say the last thing, and this is this is the one where you know I'm not sure. I I, I still find people who are deep into their career who haven't figured this out yet that. It's really about learning how to listen. And listening doesn't mean hearing the other person's word. Listening means internalizing what they said and truly understanding it and reacting to it in a very objective way, not bringing your own emotions into it. But learning how to listen is probably the most effective career skill that I've, I've learned in the past 30 years. 
Awesome. That is so great, Michael. I really appreciate those wonderful takeaways. And I appreciate your time today and all the insights that you shared and those great stories. So we're going to wrap up our interview with Michael Geller today. Michael, thank you for joining us. Debbie, thank you so much for having me. And remember, listeners, please don't be afraid to use the E word at work. And we'll see you next time. I'm Debbie Kleiman for The Upside. 